on today's episode. Constitution, when it was written, didn't make any kind of mention of religion uh, at all. It wasn't until the Bill of Rights, which came by a few years later, that there was mention of that. And there are really only two things in the Bill of Rights. One says that, that people have, have freedom of religion, and the other says that the government, and this is referring to the federal government, shall not establish any religion. Basically what that meant is that the federal government could not say, hey, you know what, we're all going to be... Anglicans now, or Roman Catholics, or worship the flying spaghetti monster. You know, the federal government cannot do anything to establish a religion. Welcome to the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. People today face many opportunities and struggles when it comes to issues of life and death, marriage and family, health and science. We're here to bring a fresh biblical perspective to these issues and more. Join us now for Life Challenges. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Krista Potratz, and I'm here today with Pastors Bob Fleischman and Jeff Samuelson. And last time, we were able to talk about some of the historical challenges with the church and state, and we ended with a discussion on the American Revolution. And this time, we really want to kind of start maybe maybe with our founding fathers and how they came up with our government and just this idea of, especially around the separation of church and state. That is maybe a phrase that we hear a lot, even now, just the separation of church and state. And so maybe just kind of if we could set the stage a little bit with what was happening then after the American Revolution and how our government was set up just in terms of that separation of church and state too. Well, one of the things that you'll notice or you'll remember perhaps from your grade school and high school history classes, that uh, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, they, they, they make reference to God. And uh, we would, as Bible-believing Christians, say, okay, this is kind of a really generic idea of God here, which fits with the deism that was not, not uncommon at that time, and particularly among some of the, the founding fathers. But I believe it was John Adams made made a comment, something about that this Constitution is written for kind of with the assumption of a, a, a religious people. You're, you're not going to have the virtues required to live by this unless you have people who actually believe something. And yeah, and I, I mean, if you could just maybe tell all of us to a little bit about like the deist belief. Okay, well, deism basically was this idea that there is a God. But, you know, and, and yeah, he created everything. But once he did that, he kind of just left it alone. You know, maybe once in a while he'll step in and intervene with something. But for the most part, it's they talked about him as a, like the, the divine watchmaker. He built the watch, he wound it up, and then he just let it go. I believe uh, Benjamin Franklin was was a deist. Uh, there are a few of the other, certainly Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was it was a pretty common kind of intellectual view of of God and religion in that era. Was there a Jesus belief at all? It was the kind of thing that they thought of Jesus as probably a historical figure, but that Christianity had. Uh, 
uh, overblown things and that all that stuff about him doing miracles and such probably wasn't really true, but he was a good man and his moral teachings were, were worth paying attention to. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was fam- famous for his version of the Bible where he basically went through with an, a knife and, and cut out everything that he thought was, was inappropriate or not believable, which basically included anything about Jesus's divinity. So most of the founding fathers then well, not necessarily most, okay. a significant but, and influential number of them. But I, 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 that's part of the the picture that's, that's helpful for us is that there was still the understanding that if you were in the Americas, if you were not a descendant of the Native Americans, you were Christian of some sort or at least religious in some way. And so pretty much everybody had a church they may not ever actually attend it except for funerals and weddings or something like that, but everyone had a church. Uh, in terms of actual church attendance, I've seen some figures from that period that it, it wasn't that good, but a lot of that was simply a reflection of the fact that we we were still very rural at that point. And if you didn't live in a city or a, or a town where you could easily get to church every Sunday, yeah, you, you wouldn't get there very often. So... Things were set up then with these community churches, like when our government then kind of came in and did this, the, the writing of the, the documents and the laws and things that we uphold now. Why was God mentioned in some of these things? Well, it was a, a good and, and we would say proper sense in which they recognized, for instance, in the Declaration of Independence, that the rights that we as human beings have come to us not because they were granted by some king or a government or anything like that, but because they, they, they were given this by the creator, by God. And that was something that they felt, we're going to appeal to the highest authority there is when we're setting, setting this thing up. And um, I, I, I am not aware of there being any real objection to that. Uh, I, I haven't studied it in depth, but uh, I think that was pretty much everybody would say, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the proper place to start here. Now, there, there's a lot of simplistic notions about the people came over because of religious oppression in the home country, so they came over. And none of that, I, I always say there's, there were certain elements of that, but I think it was a, a combination of things that compelled pilgrims and compelled people to leave Europe to come over to the United States. And they brought with them convictions, and they wanted to be able to use those convictions to practice those convictions. And if you came from an area of a state church, you wanted to be able to practice a religious conviction that probably was different than what the state church was. So if you came over from England and you didn't want to be an Anglican, this was your chance to practice some of that. And it's interesting when you read a lot of what went on in Luther's time and pr- just prior to Luther's time during Wycliffe and, and Huss and those, religious differences were taken very, very seriously. I mean, people were burned at the stake, there were executions and tortures and so forth. So I think a lot of people were looking for that, but that wasn't the only thing they were looking for. Mm-hmm. But when when it came to forming the, the documents, the founding documents, I, I, I agree with Jeff. I don't think, I've never read where, and I would love it if somebody pointed out something different, but I never read any major objection to we hold these truths to be self-evident and that we are endowed by our creator, I, I never read anything that, that says, you know, there was big dispute over that. 
personally, I would have disputed it because those are all blessings, what he described as rights. But other than that, the acknowledgement of a, of a higher being. And so and it's, so it's interesting because Jefferson writes, the, was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. He writes those words, endowed by our creator, and yet he's also the one who is tagged with the, the credit or reputation for having established the term separation of church and state. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I think, too, then maybe then that kind of leads me into actually like what is separation of church and state? Well, well sadly, today it's whatever is politically expedient. What, what's the ideal and what's the, the, the reality, you know, along with what, what Bob just said, that separation of church and state is generally what you claim when somebody with beliefs different from yours happens to have some power to exercise. Well, yeah, and that's what it seems like nowadays. But what, what was it? What was yeah. Jefferson getting at when he said it? First step back just a little bit, I, I think, in that a lot of people, I think if you ask the average American about that phrase, if they have any familiarity with it, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, that's in the Constitution. Well, it's not. You can argue that it is a, a useful kind of summary of what is in, in the Constitution, but it's, it's not explicit. The Constitution, which, again, remember, it was not at the same time as independence. It was some years later. Constitution, when it was written, didn't make any kind of mention of religion uh, at all. It wasn't until the Bill of Rights, which came by a few years later, that there was mention of that. And there are really only two things in the Bill of Rights. One says that, that people have, have freedom of religion, and the other says that the government, and this is referring to the federal government, shall not establish any religion. Basically, what that meant is that the federal government could not say, hey, you know what, we're all going to be Anglicans now or Roman Catholics or worship the flying spaghetti monster. You know, the federal government cannot do anything to establish a religion. And those two things were, were the limits of it. The thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that at the time, there were states that actually had established religions. And they didn't have the same freedom. Now, some of the, some of the states did have explicit freedom of religion in their constitutions and such. Technically, it wasn't until the 14th Amendment came in after the Civil War that all of those rights in the Bill of Rights got applied to the states individually. But anyway, the only reason I bring that up is because what we think of as what should have been the norm from the very beginning in terms of the government connection with religion wasn't always the norm. Mm-hmm. So what uh, Jefferson was, uh, you know, when he used that phrase, separation of church and state, and he he may not have been the first one to use it. But was there a story that he, or a moment that he said that? Yeah, that was, um, it was the Danbury, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on some of this, the Danbury Baptists, I believe, were upset that, was it Connecticut? I think they were in, I believe so. in Connecticut, that, that there was like a state church that was, Congregationalism and the congregationalism was uh, extracting taxes, and they were objecting to it, and so they pleaded with the president, which was Jefferson at the time, and Jefferson then used the term in the Danbury letter that uh, the term there should be a separation of church and state, and again, like like I referenced earlier, people begin to make out of that statement whatever they want it to be, depending on the circumstance, and uh, but it it raised an important issue about extracting taxes for the purpose of supporting a, uh, a religious structure, religious uh, agency, and the freedom that you have to 
go otherwise. And I think we see it played out a lot when you get into school choice debates and so forth is when you got religious schools having it, tax money and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that, it gets it gets complicated, but that's where it came from. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and to put a, a slightly finer point on it, the full phrase that Jefferson used was a wall of separation between church and state, uh, and a lot of people like to really emphasize that wall aspect, saying there there should be no connect, you know, no interaction at all. You know, there should be, you know, that one should never touch the other. And again, that's that's the point where we point out that's not actually U.S. law. That that was a letter talking about a situ, you know, specific situation or making an illustration. And and a lot of that context too is that there is basically a just an ongoing tension, probably emphasized in the Federalist Papers and so forth. This tension between Federalist form of government or a kind of a states' rights form of government. Uh, Jefferson, ironically was on the uh, what's called the republic side of things but he was very he and hamilton clashed endlessly and hamilton was a very big federalist and jefferson was not and so jefferson seemed to jump at any opportunity to kind of try to to emphasize the role of the federal government being subordinate really in some situations to the wishes of the individual states so there that's what i always mean by you know, there's more than one plate spinning on the end of a stick here. There's other things going on, and then people try to leverage their arguments. I think nowadays, too, it gets a little confusing as to how you can really be separate or what should be separate as Christians, too. What what should people kind of know about church and state, like when looking at different issues today? I think particularly helpful uh, is to start. Well, start with scripture. Yes, of course. Um, but we did that you know, episode? What, yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a novel thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Luther introduced the language, if 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 not the the concept of what was called the two kingdoms. Sometimes called the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. Uh, sometimes called the kingdom of of the state and kingdom of of the church. You know, there, there are different ways of phrasing it, but the idea that there are these two realms, and God, Christ is king in in both of them, but the authority and responsibility He gives is different in them, and the church has responsibility for the gospel. The church has the responsibility for, for, for the spiritual side of things. And that's their kingdom. That's their realm. And then on the other side, you have civil authority, the state. Uh, some, sometimes that's widened out to, to culture and society. And we could spend more than an, an episode just, just on that idea, but it's helpful to have that as a background when approaching the issue, these issues of church and state in our American context, because it helps us realize that, oh, okay, yeah. This this thing that I really want as a Christian to have become government policy, that that may actually be the church stepping into the area of the state that where where it really shouldn't be. But at the same time, having that understanding, we might be able to recognize, you know what, that's that's the state very much reaching into this arena that that belongs only to the church. And yes, we should be objecting to that. The danger for us as American Christians, and you know, particularly Lutheran Christians, is in just kind of assuming that this idea of separation of church and state is exactly the same thing as Luther's doctrine of two kingdoms, uh, and, and it's not. Yeah, today it just 
it gets really confusing as to what it is. For example, like schools get money from the government. Um, and I know that that is something that people do think about, like in our churches that do accept money for school choice. And just wondering, are it, at any point, can they tell us to do something that we don't feel comfortable with? And and do we have a place to to say no or you know or what what can we do with that what what are your thoughts on that well first of all the um the the state practices a little bit of what what sometimes humorously is referred to as the golden rule which um, is we've got the gold and we rule and so if they dis- dispense the money they can define it the way it should be used which by the way most of us work that way. If we give our kids an allowance, we define how it can be used. So the state can do that. And then people will endlessly debate whether the state is overreaching in restricting religious freedom, that kind of stuff. I think it's good to back up and to, to try to imagine really what was kind of at work here. In a republic form of government, kind of the cornerstone is the idea of freedom. We want freedom, freedom to do as we see fit. But if you're looking at freedom, you know, so if you want to be a Methodist and I want to be a Lutheran and you want to be a Catholic, you know, it would, it's very consistent with that early thinking that you could do that. And there were different religions being practiced. It's also important to recognize that there were certain religious practices that were not accepted. And, and the witch trials is probably a best example of it. In other words, there seemed to be a line that was tolerated or tolerated for a time and then that line was removed or, or that, that, or that wall was established. In other words, you, we aren't going to be burning any more witches, you know, that kind of thing. But, but the point that, that I want to make is that defining freedom for religion is a little bit like defining how you use money. In other words, if I'm the, the caretaker of freedom and so I say I'm going to give you freedom, then I determine what I mean by that. And that's why it's become a, a chess piece almost. And so like in the, in the Dobbs ruling, you know, people will, will immediately start looking at the religious background of the justices and say, based on that background, they have pushed their religious views on us. Well, first of all, it's, a, it's an extremely naive way to look at religious views because every, every view is rooted in a religious notion. Even, even if it's a godless notion, it's still a religious notion of how, how you view life and how you want life to be practiced. And that, that's why we have nine justices. We don't have one justice because you're supposed, that's why it's supposed to be balancing out. And it changes with, from time to time. And if you start looking at all the controversial Supreme Court rulings and you look at the religious background of the, the judges who ruled in the majority, you'll go crazy because, because sometimes it looks contradictory. I mean, we have, we have Roman Catholics who are on the Supreme Court who voted in favor of protecting unborn children. And we've had Roman Catholics in the, in the Senate and in the House who have voted in favor of permitting the lives of unborn children to be taken. Okay, now, which ones are we supposed to remove? Which one are we supposed to excise out of it? But see, in a, in a, a country in which freedom is a cornerstone, the, the problem is, is that Making the religious arguments and separation of church and state and so forth is a smokescreen argument because nobody wants to talk about what's going on. You know, n- nobody wants to talk about the moral foundation that says you don't take life or uh, the, the blurrier moral foundation that says we can take some life 
but not all lives. So we can take unborn children's lives, but we can't take born children's lives. But we could maybe take born disabled children's lives, but not born well, you know, equipped children's lives. And that's that's the problem that we're having today. But if I want to if I want to win the argument and I can't win it on the logic of a sound moral reasoning, then I I have to you know complain about your mother's army boots and I got to complain about. So I, I still go back to um, Justice Potter when he made the comment on defining pornography and he said said, you know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And whenever I, I read that statement, it always incenses me because the reality is there's a moral foundation that you have to be acknowledging. Now, you may credit it to your Catholicism, your Lutheranism, and so forth, or you may credit it to a different moral upbringing, an atheistic moral upbringing, but there is this foundation. And if you're going to make a stand to simply say that you can't decide on the abortion issue because of separation of church and state is complete nonsense. It it makes no no sense because then you can't decide on anything. Because what you're really deciding is you're deciding on a solid, consistently held moral foundation. Really it it's true. It it's true what you said, how we it it does maybe blind us from things, but or just like us talking about about certain things. I guess is there is there a point though, like from people like for example, like Whoopi Goldberg, who was talking on a recent episode of The View and mentioning a lot of what you said too, how uh, how just upset she was that a lot of these Catholic justices had put their religion into their their ruling with the with the Dobbs decision. I I think that. A lot of like maybe the other side just feels like, well, yeah, you know, you can there's freedom of religion so that you can be Catholic and you can be Baptist and you can do all that stuff. But don't make me don't do don't make me think or be influenced by what you are believing that that's fine. You can you can think that that life begins at conception. But when you have a job where you are supposed to, you know, uphold the standards of America or whatever, I mean, don't make don't make decisions that are going to say that I can't do what I want with my body. What what would you say to somebody who who really thinks that way? Well, and, and Whoopi Goldberg is a good example because she cherry picks her issues. It's a strong Christian value that says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. The freedom of speech, you are to make your voice known. And so she gets all incensed and everything. What in the world is she doing exercising some sort of Christian value about speaking up? You know, that's exactly what she's doing. It's it's a strong Christian value, but it happens to have other uh, – there's other non-Christian cultures that embrace that value. The The point is, is that people people will hold all sorts of different convictions about different things. I, I think really we ought to all, including Christians, be held accountable for the convictions we hold. You may think that abortion is, is an okay thing, but then, then defend it. Don't sit there and tell me because I happen to, to pray and talk to God and believe Jesus died for my sins, that's, that somehow I'm, I'm less qualified to, to have an opinion on it than you are, who happens to believe that God is just a deistic form and, you know, in the sky who's kind of a, a watchkeeper keeping over things, but beyond that, he doesn't get involved. You know, and that's the problem. And nobody wants to be accountable. Well, I've always said everybody is an expert on one thing. And that's their opinion. That's the only thing. And 
and that that they'll pound away on, but you got to be able to defend it once you step into the public arena. And people like Whoopi Goldberg have gotten away with saying way too much with very little foundation. Yeah. I, and I think another issue that is is related to all of this is that a lot of people substitute prepositions. They hear freedom of religion and they think freedom from religion. Yep. And in fact, there is a Freedom From Religion Foundation that gets in the news pretty often and files various lawsuits and things like that. And they basically take the position that religion should not have any place in public society. So any kind of public memorial to the war dead that happens to have a cross or make some reference to that, uh, any any kind of policy that in their mind seems to favor a church or some religion in general or something, they feel that that can't be there. And, and again, we, we point out the irony of it because, of course, they're acting based on their own religious beliefs about what should be and, and, and what shouldn't be uh, with that. You know, I've been reading every day ever since the Dobbs ruling about everybody and their brother having an opinion about whether they were right, whether they were smart, whether they were being pushing religion, whether they were naive, you know, those kinds of things. What's interesting in the public arena, when it's talk radio, editorials and newspapers and so forth, nobody wants to talk about whether it was right law. I mean, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court actually has a responsibility. And what, what's, what's being played out is this conflict. And I do believe conservatives have to pay a little bit better attention to it. But this conflict between originalism, in other words, what did the founding, trying to interpret what the founding fathers originally meant, and progressivism, which means sometimes you have to keep pace with changes. And a good example is talking about all the issues coming along with stem cell research and xenotransplantation and, you know, the internet and so forth. John Jay and those guys, the first Supreme Court, they never talked about that stuff. So, so you gotta, you gotta be able to modify. The problem that you're dealing with today is that, is that they want the two sides of the argument, whether we're talking abortion or LGBTQ rights and so forth, the two sides of it are basically trying to say, I think we have to change to keep up with the times. And the other side saying, I'm not sure that that's the way we want to go. And, and so you ask yourself, when the Supreme Court rules on whatever decision it's ruling, was it a good interpretation of the law? And, and it's interesting because I, quite honestly, even people who were in favor of abortion rights thought that the 1973 ruling in, on abortion, Roe v. Wade, was horrible law. It just, it just was badly constructed. And, but the point is, is that I still think the argument of, like, I like Jeff saying, you know, it's a point out that some people will say it's separation from church and state or separation of church and state. The people who invoke those arguments the loudest right now are on the losing end of an argument. You know, and when they're losing the argument, they invoke it. When when the case is on their side, they never like for example, you know, there were there was an organization back in 1972-73 called the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. So now you have a religious group for abortion rights. So should we have never legalized abortion because some religious ch uh, churches wanted abortion rights? Yeah, you know, that's what I mean. They can't. It's a, it's a smokescreen argument. It's not what we're talking about. Yeah, I I do think that it's it's worth mentioning at this uh, at this point that some of the the criticism, and I'll just say it's coming from the left. I'll just put it that way, saying that there's a problem here that with church and state getting mixed, there are people that 
are called and sometimes call themselves Christian nationalists. And um, they are actually trying to say that, well, no, we should be, you know, we are a Christian nation, we should be more of a Christian nation, and we should use the power of the government to make it so. And in some cases, they are able to uh, appeal to uh, to American history pretty effectively because you know, there, there was a time when things weren't as well distinguished as they should have been. It, some of the uh, the more recent Supreme Court decisions kind of unraveling things with church and state where, you know, like this question of whether if a state is, is giving tax money to institutions for generally, but refuses to give it to Christian schools because that's, um, they've, they've unraveled that and said, well, you've got to treat all institutions correctly. You can't disfavor, you know, Christian schools or, or any kind of schools or whatever. Those things are being unraveled now because way back in the 19th century and early 20th century, there were all sorts of rules put in place, laws passed, and they were often upheld, trying to separate the Roman Catholic Church and their institutions from the rest of American society. Uh, we Lutherans, you know, we know that we had our schools, but for a long time it was basically there are the public schools and then there are the Roman Catholic schools. And so laws were put into place in various states that said, no, you can't give any money, you can't give any cooperation or whatever to those, those sectarian Catholic schools. And for the most part, our, our Lutheran forebears didn't didn't really object to that because they didn't want the church, the, the state, interfering in any way. But why were Americans generally okay with that? Well, in the first place, because Catholics were a minority. But in the second place, because the public schools in many states were functionally Protestant schools, they'd start with prayers. They they teach the Bible in, in, in many cases. It was part of what what we now call American civil religion. Uh, which had a, a Christian veneer on it, spoke the same language as Christianity, but it really wasn't at all about faith in Jesus or, or, or trust in, in those things. But there are people today who are saying, we need to get that back. That's, that's our American identity. And they're willing to use the power of government and they're advocating using the power of government to do so. And, and that's a case where I, we would rightly say <laughs> they're mixing things that should not be mixed. Whether we make that a point, you know, a, a political point in terms of principles of uh, no establishment of religion and, and and such, or whether we make it as a theological point in terms of doctrine of the two kingdoms, we would have to say there's there's something in error there. Well, as we start to to close up a little bit, is there anything else that we want to mention about church and state? Well, there is, there is the knee-jerk reaction that Jeff was talking about, and that is this notion among some that we need to restore back, have a Christian nation, get back to that. Quite frankly, and this is just an opinion you're here, but uh, I don't want a Christian nation because I, I, I'll tell you because the people who are in the who are holding the, the, the reins who call themselves Christian, that is not the theology that I imagine when I think Christian. You know, and, and that is that I think I've often thought that that's perhaps the most practical argument against this notion of a Christian nation because, you know, right now we have Roman Catholics in high leadership positions who, the Roman Catholic Church is very pro life, and yet they get away with holding very strongly pro abortion positions or very strongly gay positions or LGBTQ positions. And, um, that does not reflect scripture, does not properly reflect scripture. So we so we unelect them and we elect better Christians. 
But invariably, the, the nature of man, the sinful nature of man, the natural inclination of man to, to be wicked mm-hmm. inevitably shows itself. It just constantly surfaces, and, and that is not what we want. That's why I think there's a good distinction that has to be always kept in mind between the work of the church and the work of the state. The state is to protect, to guard, to protect, to help. The church is to proclaim the gospel, to tend to the souls, help the people in need. And the moment that we start getting, the moment we go for shortcuts, the moment that the church thinks that I need a shortcut because I didn't do my job of proclaiming the gospel, so I need the state to pass a law, they're, they're wrong. The moment that the state is looking for a shortcut um, and saying that we need to to rally a church or we need to tax people to support a certain church to accomplish some state agenda, that's wrong. If you've got an argument, make the argument, win the case. Just in terms of final thoughts, one one pops into my head that uh, some years back, uh, people noticed that uh, some, I'll just say, prominent American politicians were, were beginning to talk about fundamental freedoms of America, and they would refer to freedom of worship, not saying freedom of religion. And many people identified that as an attempt to narrow that right, which which basically says the government can't interfere, can't put its hands where it doesn't belong. Because if you say, well, freedom of worship, well, then it's just about what you do in your church. But freedom of religion is actually much more expansive. And the argument can be made, and I think pretty pretty soundly, that there, there's no freedom of conscience, freedom to think what you want, you know, written into the Constitution. You know, where Where would that really rest? Yeah, it's really in, in freedom of religion. Because that's where it says, yeah, you can have your beliefs, you can have your thoughts, you, and you can speak them. <laughs> that's that. That's where that that rests. And so that's something just to be on the lookout for. That that nobody tries to restrict that freedom uh, in other ways, which you know is is a gift to us. God has given us this, and and He's also given us the the blessing of a a nation that for hundreds of years now has uh, said no. This is going to be a freedom that all people in this country uh, are going to enjoy. And we, we praise God for that. Well, thank you both for our discussion today. And we thank all of our listeners, too. And we will see you back next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. Please consider subscribing to this podcast, giving us a review wherever you access it, and sharing it with friends. We're sure you have questions on today's topic or other life issues. Our goal is to help you through these tough topics, and we want you to know we're here to help. You can submit your questions as well as comments or suggestions for future episodes at lifechallenges.us or email us at podcast at christianliferesources.com. In addition to the podcasts, we include other valuable information at lifechallenges.us, so be sure to check it out. For more about our parent organization, please visit christianliferesources.com. May God give you wisdom, love, strength, and peace in Christ for every life challenge.